0: What I want to talk about today is, of course, um, a history of hair. In June 2015, Rachel Dolezal was exposed as having lied about being African of African-American heritage. She was the head of a local branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. She had given talks at Eastern West Washington University on African-American politics, including actually a class on the politics of hair in the black power movement, she was very active in the African-American community. The problem, of course, as we all know, is that she was not uh, African-American. In making this transition, of course, spray tans were never going to be good enough. Crucial to her passing as a black woman um, was the way she styled her hair long dreadlocks, weaves, box braids. Even one of her harshest critics had to admit that, definitely nailed the hair, I'll give her that. This year, May this year, Anna Sorokin, Alias Anna Delvey was imprisoned for scamming her way to the top of New York's high society by pretending to be a German heiress with a $60 million fortune. Now, she may have worn Alexandra Wag outfits, but her ratty hair betrayed her. In the words, again, of one critic, no real heiress would be seen dead without immaculate hair now what i think these two cases kind of illustrate is the importance of course of hair to human culture including its centrality to the performance of self and knowledge of others there is no mystery over its physiological properties except for the lips soles and feet and soles of the feet, and palms, all parts of the body, human body, are covered with hair. Its primary function, protective, it regulates body temperature, helps with insulation. Like fingernails, like toenails, hair is made from the fibrous structure protein, keratin. Like skin, its color is due to uh, melanin, and its growth depends on factors such as hormones, nutrition, sunlight, climate. None of course of this matters to most of us because hair is much more than simply its physiological manifestations. Numerous historians, anthropologists, sociologists, etc. have observed that the body is a site for the cultural production and staging of the self. Hair is one of those most visible social markers, in part because of course it surrounds the eyes, that central focus in face-to-face encounters. Hair is a highly variable cultural artifact that is extremely malleable. It can be cut, coloured, curled, braided, knotted, crimped, twisted, straightened, backcombed, teased, moisturised, oiled, gelled, sprayed, shaved and, of course, wrapped. People wear wigs, weaves, hairpieces, extensions. They cover their hairs with scarves and hijabs. We instinctively think that we know something about the other person, another person, if, for example, they sport the big, bold hair of southern white US women. The short, cropped hairstyles um, fashionable amongst their professional counterparts, living, for example, in the urban coastal regions of the US, convey a very different meaning. The centrality of hair to our sense of self is often only fully realized, of course, when it falls out. We end up lamenting its loss. The process of becoming bald, of course, differs very dramatically between men and women. Men typically experience a receding hairline from the temple while balding at the vertex while women's hair tends to thin over the mid-scalp and frontal areas. Women experience baldness less frequently than men because women have higher levels of oestrogen, lower levels of androgens. Chemotherapy, in fact, poses the greatest threat to our um, luxurious locks. For many women, losing hair can actually feel like a bereavement leading to a fear of socializing, extreme anxiety, and depression. Now in contrast, of course, balding is a normal part of male aging. It happens to 12% of men by the time they reach 25 years of age. And 65% of men over the age of 65 inspect their bald patches in the bathroom window every morning. Now of course, just because something is normal does not mean that it is welcomed. We don't need to be reminded of the biblical story of Samson to acknowledge that for many British men, hair, hairiness signifies strength and of course virility. As the writer Albert Griffin explained in a 1934 article in the New Statesman, Bald men make frantic efforts to keep among the ranks of the bethatched. When the skull begins to show through, there is consternation. Each hair from that time is cherished with the deepest affection. 1983, my favorite story about balding, Um, the Washingtonian told a story of an 18-year-old young man who sought help from a physician in Washington, D.C., for his rapidly receding hairline. In an attempt to shake him out of his severe depression about his hair, the doctor told him there's only one solution, castration. We'll have to cut off your testicles." After a shocked silence, the young man sighed and replied, Well, okay. (laughs) In fact, the best treatment today, I read yesterday, um, for um, hairlessness amongst men, actually causes um, a major side effect, erectile dysfunction. Anyway, follicle um, invigoration invigoration products are very, very popular amongst men, and restorative surgery has become a major branch of aesthetic surgery, and we may want to think why this has been seen as a form of aesthetics as opposed to disease or illness. Modern hair transplantation was started in 1959, Norman Oritrex, using what is called a punch technique, Punch sizes of 44 millimeters each, containing 16 to 20 hairs, but the results looked unnatural and often left patients with long scars and plugs of hair. 1980s things improved dramatically with micrograft surgery, enabling follicular transplantation. However, it too left scars. But the process today, even though remains quite invisible, in other words, quite successful, but it remains laborious. A single transplant session can take seven hours and involves the insertion of between 1,500 and 2,000 grafts. In other words, men undergoing this procedure bear a great deal of pain to restore their hair. Indeed, anaesthetic is usually necessary. Now, part of the reason why hair is so central to personhood is because, of course, it sends signals to oneself and, of course, to others about gender, class, status, age, generation, marital status, religion, group membership, familial ties, politics. It is personal, but a highly uh, cultural, highly visible cultural artefact. Elaborate hairstyles send this message, they tell people that I've got time, I've got money. These messages are of course also highly historical. Eighteenth century Europe, take one example, male elites powdered, feathered, piled up and curled their hair. Up to two pounds of powder could be used to dress the hair of a single man for a single day. Aesthetics, we all know this, it's not only eye candy, it's also about power. Aesthetic judgments about hair are fundamentally political. When early colonists went to America, they were intrigued by the relative hairlessness of Native American men, which they interpreted as, in fact, proof of the feebleness of constitution of indigenous peoples. This was just, of course, one more excuse for colonialists to deny them rights to property, community, self-governance. To degrade other people, hair is often forcibly removed. Shaving practices were important activities carried out during slavery, for example, and military conquest. Slave traders regularly or routinely shaved their chattel as a form of dehumanization. They also shaved and oiled the faces of enslaved men to make them look younger. So what you see is you get buyers of these male, young male slaves, buyers seeking to detect this fraud by licking the cheeks of male slaves in an attempt to detect um, stubble. In times of war, women who collaborated with enemy men, of course, were also seized, shorn, paraded through the streets, Criminals prisoners, often subjected to similar kinds of indignities. As late as the 1830s, drunks in the streets of Glasgow were routinely shaved as a form of punishment, but also identification. Now, in modern Britain, though, this obsession with hair really peaked in the 19th century. Historian Galia Offek has convincingly argued that Victorians had a fetishistic attitude to hair, and she actually means this literally. The streets, in fact, seemed to be full of people, men with hair fetishes. They were known as plate cutters or hair despoilers, who would sneak up behind young women in broad daylight, and cut off their braids. 1869, the Times, for example, reported on, capital letters, HAIR THIEVES. In consequence of the demand, they wrote, for hair of particular colours and shades, a new branch of cleptic industry has sprung up. The tresses dangling behind the head are easy prey. This trade in human hair in this Victorian period, of course, exposed these chasms of difference between the lives of the rich and the very poor. First of October, 1868, the Times reported that, inasmuch as human hair of any fine quality is worth four or five times as much per ounce as silver, the temptation is to rob the dead. It is enough to make us uneasy. But the sad reality, of course, was that it wasn't the dead. There were plenty of impoverished women keen to sell their locks of hair for a piece of bread. This obsession with hair was accompanied by the fact that Victorians took it for granted that their hair conveyed important social and emotional messages. Indeed, it is very difficult to find a Victorian novel or painting that does not linger on hair of its characters. Hair was believed to expose a person's inner character and state of mind. Wuthering Heights, for example, Isabel Linton is portrayed as having these artfully arranged curls until, when upset, her hair uncurled, locks hanging lankly down and some carelessly twisted around her head. In contrast, novel Dracula um, describes his hair as growing scantily around the temples but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. Bestial hair, in other words, bestial soul. Victorian painters shared similar views. Disheveled hair revealed a loose woman, as in Frederick Sands' Mary Magdalene. And women sent to Magdalene homes, of course, had their hair shaved. Insanity, derangement could be read through hair as prominent Victorian hair scientists who regularly informed physicians. In a book called Healthy Skin, a popular treatise on the skin and hair, 1853, Sir Erasmus Wilson told readers that hair secretes excess, which was why a woman might be cured of mania or derangement by having her hair cut. Benjamin Godfrey agreed in his very, very famous, at the time, very popular, um, Diseases of the Hair, 1872, he argued that pathologies of women's hair were caused by aberrant sexual urges and madness. He noted, um, I combed my hair very carefully before I came in today, Um, he noted that many, quote, considered the hair to be a kind of excrement fed with the debris of the body. Hair was produced to carry off the excess of material. In The Female, he warned, the hairy system appears to depend upon the regular uterine functions. Victorians also made hair into works of art. The Great Exhibition... um, 1851, showcased at least 11 displays of hair art. And a prize was offered for a large portrait of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, made solely from hair. As late, by the way, as 2005, the Queen's hair, Queen Victoria's hair, this is, treasured in an album, was sold for nearly 50,000 pounds. There was a flourishing trade in the Victorian period in hair jewellery, created, of course, mainly by professional hair workers. Swiss jeweller um, Antony Foureur was the most famous, and he employed up to about 50 um, workers in his Regent Street um, shop by appointment of the Queen. It was a pastime, though, that actually was enjoyed by many middle and upper-class women as well. In their drawing rooms, they crocheted and they knitted hair into ornaments, necklaces, braces, brooches, rings, purses, and so on. Hair was was a particularly prominent part of relic culture in Britain between particularly eighteen fifties, eighteen eighties. Wreaths were made from the hair of women who had, uh, whose hair had been shorn in anticipation of them devoting themselves to Christ within the confines of a um, uh, convent. Locks of hair were cut from infants, dead infants, I should say, and lovingly worn around their grieving mother's necks. The infant's hair could be finely cut and then sprinkled on a cardboard on which glue had been painted in the likeness of the dear departed child. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a a wonderful poem about such hair relics entitled Only a Curl, um, 1862. It was dedicated to a mother who had lost her golden haired child. Part of the poem goes like this. "'Tis easy for you to be drawn by a single gold hair of that curl from Earth's storm and despair to the safe place above us." In other words, a single strand of her dead infant's hair linked the world, her world, of the living with that of the dead. On a happier note, Uh, Hair relics, of course, also uh, forged binding connections between lovers because there was believed to be this kind of sympathetic connection between a person and parts of their body. And by the way, this includes nail pairings and excrement as well as hair. Um, but because of this sympathetic connection, locks of hair encased in lockets or rings possessed almost magical qualities, as well as representing something of incalculable value. This was why, of course, to go back to Wuthering Heights, my favorite novel, um, when uh, Catherine died, of course, Heathcliff removed Edgar's hair from her locket, threw it on the ground, and replaced it with a lock of his own hair. This would ensure, he believed, an everlasting relationship with the woman he loved. Queen Victoria similarly had Garrard's, the royal uh, jewellers, make her beloved Prince Albert's hair into at least eight pieces of jewellery. When Nelson was dying on board HMS Victory, he requested, pray, pray let my dear Lady Hamilton have my hair and all other things belonging to me. The popular, very popular, mid-nineteenth-century goey 's Ladies book summarized the sentiments behind such poignant gestures by declaring that hair is at once the most delicate and lasting of our materials and survives us like love. It is so light, so gentle, so escaping from the idea of death, that with a lock of hair belonging to a child or friend, we may almost look up to heaven and compare notes with angelic nature. We may almost say, I have a piece of thee here, not unworthy of thy being now as historian Deborah Lux put it in her fabulous um, 2001 article entitled, The Dead Still Among Us. In Victorian culture, she said, the hair jewel says, we will meet again. Now, given the importance of hair as this kind of sign, it's not surprising to find Victorians developing these really elaborate ways um, to ensure that people got it right. The pseudo-scientific science of physiognomy was one body of knowledge that could be employed to read people's minds and personalities. And physiognomy had a great deal to say about hair. Johann Caspar Lavater, the famous physiognomist, taught that hair was this natural symbol that could be used in the humoral diagnosis of character. Thus, he lectured, phlegmatic men possessed thin, shoulder-length hair. The hair of melancholics was melancholic. That of um, chlorics was lively. Lavater also encouraged people to pay attention to beards, at least those sported by men. By the way, he contended that um, a woman with a beard is less horrifying than a woman who thinks in her own right. Uh, Beards, um, charming character. Um, Beards were important because men's hair was resorbed semen. Luxuriant beards showed that their owners possessed an abundance of semen. Men addicted to the vice of Masturbation mm, were unmasked by their sparse facial hair. Now, the color of a person's hair was as important as its density and as, as its texture. Changing color could be, of course, extremely hazardous. Um, 1872, for example, Scientific American reported that nearly all hair dyes. Sold to restore the color of hair, contain significant quantities of lead, a deadly poison, highly injurious to the health when applied to the scalp or other portions of the body, even in minute quantities. Indeed, 16% of the most um, highly selling, best selling um, hair restorative um, consisted of pure lead. But people might actually take these risks, of course, because color mattered. Victorian art tended to agree that women with dark hair were dangerous or sexually uncontrollable. Um, As in William Holman Hunt's The Lady of Charlotte and Frederick Sands' Passionate Medea, a woman, of course, who committed infanticide and regicide. In white cultures, myths about the meaning of red or auburn hair have excited the most discussion. Red hair has been seen as indicating treachery, think um, foxes or um, Judas, or female lust, think Mary Magdalene. St. Louis even regarded the hair of prostitutes to be dyed red in order to distinguish them from virtuous women. According to one account, the dislike for red hair in England originated from the aversion to the red-haired Danish invaders of its shores in ancient times. The man with a red beard was held in contempt and regarded as vile with a cruel disposition. Still others asked whether red-haired men, in fact, had a tendency to be criminals. The very distinguished, one of the most distinguished uh, criminologists of um, uh, the uh, mid-20th century, Hans von Hettig, certainly believed this was the case. In 1947, he published a much quoted article entitled Red Hair, Red Head and Outlaw, a Study in Criminal Anthropology. Von Hettig noted that a high proportion of outlaws had red hair. This was because he believed Red-headedness is often combined with accelerated motor innovation, in aversion. In other words, redhead men were swift in firing their rifles. The temperament of redheads was characterized by Jess. Jack, uh, James Jesse James, he wrote. He said, they were revengeful in nature, always sanguine and impetuous, impetuous, almost heedless. Now, these prejudices, of course, have no basis in fact, but surgeons actually might be uh, forgiven for worrying um, about redheads. Um, surgeons long have worried that redhead patients had a reduced pain threshold and a higher risk of excessive bleeding and in fact clinical studies have shown that this is the case. Redheads are more sensitive to pain and do require more anesthetics during surgery than control groups. Now the most common Message conveyed by hair, though, is not about personality, criminality, sensitivity to pain. It is about sexuality and politics. Hair is sexy, and here I am not referring to Freud's analysis of Medusa's hair, which he believed symbolized female genitals and therefore incited castration anxiety in men. Rather, hair was a way to signal dissent from prevailing uh, moral codes. Anthropologists, well-respected anthropologists like Edmund Leash and Charles Berg have also developed elaborate uh, taxonomies based upon hair. According to them, societies where long, freely flowing, even unkempt hair was fashionable were unrestrained in their sexual expression. Societies in which short, shaved or tightly bound hair were lauded were sexually restrained. Now, of course, their model was extremely culturally uh, specific. I mean, we just have to think of the long hair of hermits, um, a sign of celibacy, not uh, licentiousness. But there is a grain of truth in their formulations. Women, in particular, have often used hairstyles to send a message to lovers. The desire for increased sexual freedoms amongst women, for example, those who bobbed their hair in the 1920s is just one example. During the 1968 protests against Miss America pageant, feminists not only threw their bras and their girdles into the freedom trash can, but they also threw wigs, hair hair curlers, false eyelashes. Men, too, were not immune to using, of course, the hair to signal protest. From the 1960s, most famous example, of course, long hair sent a clear message to those who sought to police the morals of the young. Um, popularized by the Beatles early 1960s, um, especially as a result of their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show in February 1964. Long-haired young men were regarded as the opposite of their um, clean-shaven counterparts. Counter-culture, not conformity, was their mantra. At Woodstock Festival, long-haired, bearded, mustachio, mustachio, whatever, <laughs> um, rockers like Jerry Garcia, uh, Jimi Hendrix, country Joe MacDonald, David Crosby, wooed audiences with their electric riffs as well as their hairiness. John Lennon, Yoko Ono, stage two bed-ins in Amsterdam and, of course, in Montreal, as performance art honeymoons. Signs behind their beds bore the words, bed Peace, hair Peace." Lennon strummed his guitar as he and Ono chanted, Stay in bed, grow your hair, bed piece, hair piece, hair piece, bed piece. Around the same time, thousands of people were flocking to see um, the musical Hair, which had been inspired by the Summer of Love in San Francisco, 1967. The final words, of course, of the show went, my hair, I'm not going to sing it, my hair like Jesus wore it, hallelujah, I adore it, hallelujah, Mary loved her son, why don't my mother love me? Hair, 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 flow it, show it, long as God can grow it, my hair. They met with a powerful backlash, of course, appalled by trends. Schools and universities in particular sought to impose strict um, guidelines and regulations concerning hairstyle, length, sideburns, beards, moustaches, goatees. In the words of one high school principal, long hair is un-American. According to him, whenever I see a long-haired youngster, he is usually leading a riot. He has gotten through committing a crime. He's a dope addict or some such thing, so in other words, long-haired men were both feminized, but also seen as representing this kind of macho-like rebelliousness. Young men fought back, of course, some rather meekly responded, well, Jesus had long hair. Um, But others took their cases to federal as well as state court, and indeed nine cases got um, as far as the U.S. Supreme Court. The political uses of hair I've been discussing so far um, cross lines of gender, class, race, but some of the most heated debates in the 20th century emerged from within African-American communities. As already mentioned, the history of black hair has been one of denigration, exploitation, fear, hatred from white communities. An important turning point occurred at the beginning of the 20th century um, with the African-American entrepreneur, Madame C. J. Walker, born in 1867 as Sarah Breedlove in Delta, Louisiana, and the first member of her family to be born free, um, was uh, extremely influential. Now, she was influenced herself by African-American leaders. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Margaret Murray Washington, the wife of um, uh, Booker T. Madame Walker decided that the racist link between straight hair and higher social and economic status had to be tackled. She wanted to free African-American women from emotional economic dependence, whether this was dependence on white society or indeed on black men. Her 1905 hair softener, which came with a hair straightening comb, was the first hair product produced, developed, manufactured and sold to black people. Walker's beauty empire, which included not only hair products, but also beauty schools as well, turned her into the first and wealthiest self-made female millionaire in America. At her height, it is said that she employed a 100,000 African-American sale agents and hairdressers. In the words of her famous speech at the 1912 annual convention of the National Negro Business League in Chicago, she told the attendants that, I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. I was promoted from there to the washtub. Then I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there I promoted myself, and she said to a Shouted that out. I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I have built my own factory on my own ground. My object in life is not simply to make money for myself or to spend it on myself. I love to use a part of what I make to help others. It was a statement in harmony with Booker T. Washington's ideology of racial self-help. In racially segregated salons, black women found a place where they could forge successful entrepreneurial cultures by developing products specially addressing the needs of black hair. These salons also nurtured specifically black notions of beauty. Now for Madame Walker, soft straight hair was not a matter of emulating the look of white people. Rather, she aimed to promote a modern appearance for status-conscious, conscious, ambitious black women. In more recent decades, however, her brand of black empowerment has been criticized, straightening, using relaxes, or applying heat using a curling iron could be painful and hazardous to customers and hairdressers alike. More to the point, I think, early African-American political movements were supremely conscious of the psychological harms done to young black children due to the constant barrage of criticism about the aesthetics of black hair. Hair discrimination became a central plank in liberationist struggles from the ni- in the 1960s and 70s in particular. Challenging internalized as well as external racism in- involving glorifying so-called natural hairstyles. Marcus Garvey, Jamaican activists who co-established the Negro Universal Improvement Association, W.E.B. Du Bois, Pan-Africanist, Booker T. Washington, civil rights leader, Malcolm X, who repudiated the chemically straightened hair he had worn as a young man, which is some of the activists who vocally opposed hair straightening. As Garvey preached, don't remove the kinks from your hair, remove them from your brain. The Black Power movement with its slogan, Black is Beautiful, died down in the 1970s when many African-Americans moved towards a more assimilationist position. Indeed, from the end of that decade, the Afro, Braid and Dreadlock were regarded by many as too overtly political and threatening their social mobility in a racist society. But And as a result, the sale of chemical straighteners soared in the 1970s, as did the sales of wigs and weaves. Bell Hooks explained that many black folk were rejecting the ethnic communalism that had been a crucial survival strategy when racial apartheid was the norm and were embracing liberal individualism. Consequently, she continued, black folks could now feel that the way they wore their hair was not political but a matter of choice. But, of course, the debates or about hair remain as powerful as ever. Writers like Bell Hooks enthusiastically promoted natural styles, and her children's picture book *Happy to Be Nappy* (1999) celebrated um, African American natural styles. However, for every African American commentator who contended that hair straightening was kind of assimilation um, and a form of denying black beauty, there were others who countered that position by insisting that there was, in fact, nothing inherently wrong with trying a new look. This came to a head in June 2013, when Antonia Upia, founder of Unruly, um, if you look it up, unruly.com, along with other black activists, staged what they called an exhibit and they chose that word very deliberately, an exhibit in Union Square, New York City. They controversially addressed what they regarded as a baffling desire amongst white folks to touch black hair, and they stood with these signs, embossed with the words, you can touch my hair, and encouraged people to do just that, in an attempt to understand which is why white folks were so curious about black hair. Not surprisingly, the backlash was heated. A counter exhibition uh, was staged with black women holding uh, placards saying, you cannot touch my hair, I am not your Sarah Bartman. The point being made, of course, by these counter exhibitors was that um, they were unwilling to grant strangers physical access to their bodies, claiming that this was just another step in a long history of racism, corporeal availability, objectification, and dehumanization of black women. And these debates have, of course, major ramifications in terms of labor rights. This can be summarized by just very briefly looking at the most influential court case about hair to reach U.S. courts. This was in 1981. Rogers versus American Airlines upheld the right of that airline to discriminate against an African-American plaintiff who was told she could not wear braids at work. Renee Rogers had argued that the airline's prohibition, discriminating against her as a woman in general and as a black woman in particular, um, was racist. The court ruled against her. And there were three explanations for this court's decision. First was that the airlines disallowed, the airlines disallowing of braided hairstyles was neither gender nor racial discrimination, it applied to both men and women of all races. Second, the court claimed that the company was not engaged in classifying employees on the basis of any immutable characteristics, whether gender or racial. Thirdly, their policy did not violate the exercise of a fundamental right. They claimed that braided hair was not a natural hairstyle, but an artifice. When Rogers argued that the wearing of braids reflected her choice for ethnic and cultural identification, the court responded by contrasting immutable aspects of race and socio-cultural ones. When Rogers contended that the policy had a disparate impact on black women, the court contended that the style had in fact been popularized by Beau. Derek, a white woman, the fact that black women had popularized the style for centuries, if not millennium, did not make any difference to a court who could only see braids when worn by a black actress. And this is why Rachel Dolezal's hair matters. Hair remains a system of power. It is shaped by cultural acts it configures relationships amongst women, as well as between the full range of genders. Renee Rogers' 1981 legal plea to have the multiple intersectionalities of her life respected resonates in the 21st century. 2017, black woman applying for a job at Harrods was ordered to chemically straighten her hair. Today, schools routinely apply rules that stigmatize black hairstyles. It was only in July this year that California became the first U.S. state to ban discrimination over natural hairstyles. The 2015 scandal, in other words, of Rachel Dolezal's lying about her race has reignited debates about the politics of hair. Thank you.